Hey, everybody, time for another Shop Talk show. This week is just Dave and I doing as many questions and answers as we possibly can. Uh, let's see. There's going to be some interesting ones. We're going to be talking about oh, things like smacks a little bit. We're going to talk about developer convenience, ergonomics, HTTP2. We're going to talk about, let's see, what's in here. You know, some stuff about nonprofits, some follow-up on sitemaps, some stuff about JavaScript templating, just the tip of the iceberg. There's so many things we're going to talk about. This episode of Shop Talk is brought to you in part by Braintree Payments. Mobile app development can be complex, but integrating your payments no longer has to be. With Braintree, your business can accept nearly every type of payment from any device with just one integration. Learn more at braintreepayments.com slash shop talk. Uh, as well as CodePen. Did you know that the CodePen job board is also the Shop Talk job board here and the CSS Tricks job board? Your job, when you post it there, goes to all of those different audiences, all with one click of the form. <laughs> For now, Dave, sir, please kick things off. Hey there, Shopper Maniacs. You're listening to another episode Shop Talk Show <laughs> Development Podcast. I'm Dave Rupert. With me is Chris Coyer. That's right. Hello, everybody. Time for, beep, some, beep. Time for some questions. We're going to be doing a lot more of these lately because we've got some good feedback and it just feels right. Uh, we used to call them rapid fires. Maybe we'll still call them rapid fires, but I think we're headed into kind of a mini season of just Dave and I episodes where we like, you know, dig into to what Dave and I know about web development. And we've gathered together some of those questions today. Let me get right into it. This is one that me and Dave talked about in person not so long ago because it was just kind of an interesting, interesting concept around the idea of developer convenience. But the, we might as well pick a question based on it. This one's from Magnus Scare. What are your thoughts? on developer convenience versus user satisfaction? Where do you draw the line of good enough and is budget the only factor for, uh, for these things? So the example is you know, loading an entire CSS framework just to create you know, a nice-looking button or loading the whole jQuery library to fade something in and out, both of which are very convenient for the developer, certainly. Nice, clean APIs, don't have to worry about cross-browser stuff, yada, yada. But inconvenient, in you know, that's one word for it, <laughs> for the user, uh, if they have a poor internet connection, or it's just a lot of, it's just a lot of bytes across the wire uh, to accomplish a fade in and out. I think we could all agree with that. He goes on to say that the the WCAG, the WCAG, yeah, the Web Content Accessibility Guideline outlines excellent practices for font sizes, color con- contrast, etc. Should there be something similar for loading times? Wow, interesting, right? A slow website, after all, is inaccessible. So that's just one setup for this, um, you know, quote unquote developer convenience that we could talk about. Is that a is that a good example of it? I mean, it seems like these days Dave Rupert probably wouldn't load jQuery just to fade something in or out. Oh, Dave Rupert is too lazy to load jQuery. It, <laughs> like looking up the Google URL, ugh, that's too. Ugh, not gonna do that. I'm just gonna write query selector all in a for loop. Um, that's it. So that's the exact opposite. Is that you? You actually find it less, more convenient to just I don't know, just type the JavaScript. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I'm, I think I'm at the point where I'm like, you know, two years down the road, or well, shoot jQuery is 10 years old. So I'm like 10 years into using jQuery or whatever. And, and I'm have projects now I'm trying to move off of jQuery. And, and if there's any, like if there's a, is there's a point where I'm like, I would maybe want to move this off of jQuery. I will, I will not use jQuery entirely. Um, just, just because there's, it's a lot of effort to move off of jQuery. I know there's websites like you might not need jQuery, but if you want to use closest, you sure as hell do because that's really hard to kind of navigate in, you know. I know. I'm a fan of closest. That's the one that travels up the DOM tree until it finds the matchingest selector, right? Yeah, or or like parent li. So you just go go up the DOM tree to find an li and then stop. Like you can write these in normal JavaScript. Obviously, jQuery is just JavaScript. <laughs> 
but it, it's I, I'm just like those well, convenience functions are convenience. so good. Yeah, yeah, those conveniences are so great. Um, all right, so let's let's can can I kind of deconstruct this a bit? Like loading a CSS framework to create a button. I think that's a straw man argument, right? No one's actually doing that. You load a CSS framework because you're like, well, I think I would benefit from all these like built pre-built components later on it's no one's like i'm gonna use bootstrap for their buttons so here's four megs of css because i want to use bootstrap buttons uh no one's loading jquery just to fade something in and out i don't think i think any conscious developer is probably saying i'm gonna load jquery and in hopes that like it'll solve a bunch of problems for me over x amount of years or whatever Which usually think- plays out that way you know maybe not Which- on tiny sites but i think if you've made the decision to go jQuery and you've been it's been a part of your web app build for five years now you're probably using the crap out of it <laughs> yeah I mean in in there's you know things like dollar Ajax which is also a great de- developer convenience you know it'll help you build things faster than like opening and closing XML HTTP requests you know it's there there are like legit reasons to have developer convenience and if you you're like well just use fetch the new html5 fetch it's like that's cool but like you need a fetch polyfill which is also kilobytes you need an es6 promise polyfill which is also kilobytes like all of these things kind of add up uh that said i i think like i laugh every time i hear developer convenience it's like i need to use react because it's just so easy i'm just like uh you know like don't worry it's not about you the developer it is about the user however i think where i draw the line is and i think magnus asked like do you where do you draw the line of good enough and and for me it's like would the project ship with without it you know like i'm not gonna like i think we've talked about this before but there are like super valid reasons to use a front-end framework like react it's because you have like a a state complexity problem that react kind of just manages out of the box and and solves your your state issues you have like i don't know follow buttons or check boxes and 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 you're you're talking about in the like tens to twenties to fifties of interactions you know and, and to recode those all by hand in the most performant vanilla css way possible it, it that's so much work and in react kind of just solves that for you right Right. There's so much, right? Because it's like what you're getting at, I think, is like it is sometimes developer convenience and user convenience is at odds. And sometimes they're not at odds. Sometimes using jQuery is the right move because it solves a bunch of, it means that development is faster. It means cross-browser things are going to work. It means yada, yada, yada. It means all these things. it's, It's just this is like an eternal war where it's like, I don't know, like, okay, React solved the complexity problem, which means that this app is going to ship two months sooner. You know, what's a good user experience? An uh, app that exists, you know? Right. <laughs> or like, right. like, what about bugs? You know, like, if, you're, if the developer has all these conveniences, they can fix bugs a lot faster. That's great, too. But, you know, at the cost of 20K or whatever, so sometimes it's at odds and sometimes it's not, which is, makes it an eternal battle. Well, and that's that. That's rarely ever what I hear. You know, there's like two camps. It's like oh, I just wanted to use JavaScript camp, and there's like the you should never use JavaScript <laughs> wrong, you know, camp. And it's like, it's like if if I can like do this in like a week with React or Angular or whatever, and 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 it like I can validate kind of the idea. That's great. And but if I spent like three or four months and tens and twenties of thousands of dollars to like build this thing out and and I still and I ship a like a JavaScript app and I know we I just blew away the PG thirteen rating here, but uh, you know, if you if you ship a crappy JavaScript app, that does nothing for the user. That that's like worse, right? Like just just a spaghetti app, you know. It's like here's a plate of spaghetti, enjoy it. Uh, some people are eating steaks, but you get spaghetti. 
that's a bad analogy. And then, the like, trains. is it? And now, we're, now we've pitted this like convenience versus library kind of thing, which doesn't also doesn't necessarily need to be the case. You know, you could be like, well, this library had these conveniences, and without it, we don't get those conveniences. Or can you be like, well, can we put our finger on what those conveniences are and write ourselves some helpers to get us there without having to lean on, say, the entire library? Can we pull the button styles that we really like from this library? and load a part of it, still get the conveniences, but not have the negatives. Can we load those two polyfills? Are we cool with that without loading the, this other more giant library? You know, That's why it's almost good that these this is an eternal argument because there's all this gray area in between where you can, you can balance conveniences uh, with, with, the, with load times and accessibility and all that stuff. So it's kind of good that you're thinking about this stuff, Magnus, and good that uh, there are no like perfect answers to it. The answer is not... Use no helpers whatsoever because every bite counts and yada yada. You know, like that's not to like to to go too far one direction is not the answer. To give yourselves no conveniences as a developer at all, you'll never ship anything, you'll never fix anything, it'll be a disaster. The answer is not also to give yourself every possible convenience you could ever want and have a ten megabyte app or whatever because that's no good either. Of course, it's in the middle somewhere, like everything right. else on planet Earth. Well, the the interesting thing is like how. You know, you can validate against WCAG like A, double A, triple A, and triple A is super hard to meet. So, like when when you talk about just being like WCAG, like realize what you're asking for because triple A is very hard to meet. It's like every piece of audio needs to be transcribed, and and you know it, it has to be perfect. Um, so I, I'm just saying, like, I I do think, though, based on, you know, kind of rhetoric from the Google camp, who's like, the web is too slow and it's going to die. Um, I there is I, I think we're probably approaching a time where there's like a a hard line for what a website needs to render and paint and be interactive at. So I think that's coming down the pipeline. So I would be prepared Um but it's, I don't know, that's so tricky to me because I think, I don't know, Google also invented AMP, which I think is just a joke town. So um, I don't okay. know. I'm not a fan. It's junior websites. It's it's a baby website. It's MDOTS Part 2. And they just wrote a blog post like saying, oh, but it's not MDOTS Part 2, but it is MDOTS Part 2. So anyway, that's my thoughts. I'll talk to you on the internet. James <laughs> Hammond writes in... Uh, What's you guys' coding setup, ergonomically speaking? I work from home and don't really have a home office, so basically my setup involves wherever I'm comfortable working on my laptop. Sounds nice, right? Turns out it's not so nice. Years of working with, from a laptop with bad posture. I've taken a toll on my lower back and I'm starting to develop a hump in my neck. Yikes. Uh, ergonomics and healthy work posture have obviously become very important to me. How important it is to you and uh, what do you do to avoid the hunched over old hag posture. Um, so yeah, he's sensing James is, is in a bit of a slump. As a, oh. <laughs> as a, oh. <laughs> oh, nice. Oh, of course it's true. I mean, this is also a hot topic of which there are many blog posts talking about, you know, whatever is sitting the new smoking, you know, that type of stuff. We've all had that problem. We all sit in chairs for a living. I think a few of us have um, switched over to standing desks. I'm literally standing right now at my standing desk. I don't preach it. I don't even care that much. I stand probably an hour a day. I'm not that into it, but I do like having it. I'd like having it as an option. I think it probably helps stave that. I, I don't have a hump in my neck, hopefully maybe because of this or whatever. Uh, but there's so many things that factor into it. Dave, you just you just did some home upgrades, right? Oh, yeah. So I, I'm feeling James. So I just did some upgrades. I got that uh, IKEA standing desk. It's, you know, the kind of cheapest standing desk I could really find. Uh, How much I, was I it? Like, it was like $450. Okay, that and, is and cheap so, as far as these things go. Mine was, I think I just decided to go big. I think it was probably three times that or more. And it and it's probably gonna last you a little bit longer, but um, but so I spent like four fifty, and so the desk I had before was just and this is another like IKEA creation, but it was just like a plank of wood with like two 
uh, aluminum foil legs, right? <laughs> Leg things. And, um, and that was like great and, and cheap. And, and I've kind of abide by the, uh, cheap desk, uh, expensive That's chair, chair yeah. startup mantra. Um, uh, just because I, I bought a Herman Miller chair, uh, and that, that was expensive. And, and the re, but it, literally saved my ass and I apologize. I'm cussing so much, but it, it did because, um, I, I was like having, I couldn't like sit down in a non cushioned chair because I was like working out of like either coffee shops or some like target chair I found on the side of the road or something <laughs> like, like I was hurting myself, um, in, in my hurting my bottom basically. And, uh, so I got a, an expensive chair and that really fixed it up a lot. But recently I've been finding myself very hunched over as part of it. I kind of hit like a peak weight, which I was uncomfortable with. And and I just kind of wanted to shake up how I work. Um, so I got a, uh, the standing desk, which is for, and- is part of the cost because it goes up and down. Does it have a motor on it? Yeah, yeah. yeah see, that's motor. the deal. Somebody just wanted to like go all of a sudden and stand all day long and just have a tall desk. It probably wouldn't be four hundred and fifty dollars. You know? Oh, it'd probably be. Yeah, I mean, I think you could do it real cheap. And IKEA actually has a hand cranked one for like half that cost too. So if you wanted to hand crank, but I just was like, I'm just gonna go with the electric. Um, mm-hmm. And and then what I got, and this was stupid too, um, but I, I got this little thing called a fluid stance board. And and it's basically like a balance board. Does that make sense? Like almost like a skateboard, but you uh, like balance. Yeah, I have like I think at gyms a lot of times they have these circular discs with little beads on them, kind of that they that they like half inflate, and just standing on the half inflated thing is kind of hard, and it's good for balance. It sounds like it's in that vein. Yeah, it's kind of just this like like curved bottom on a plank of wood, and. Um, I love this thing, and I convinced my coworker Trent to get one. Um, it, it's uh, it, it was expensive, but it's like aesthetically pleasing, and it like supports my weight, and not all of them support my my current weight. Um, and it's actually enabled me to like do the standing desk for for like four hours, six hours a day. Like I can do it for a long uh, time. So it seems just, like it it like would would be harder than standing because you're shifting your weight around and stuff. But it actually somehow makes it easier. Yeah, it's just you know when you stand a lot, you're like you kind of you're putting a lot on your feet. You know, just kind of heavy on your feet. This I can kind of shift the weight around around my feet. Um, and then because I'm balancing, I think my legs kind of do a little more of the work. But what I noticed with that, and and I this could be claimed chowder. I, I know the science is still out on standing desks, so um I I don't like necessarily like I don't want to be like this is a scientific fact, but I, I feel like this standing desk plus the the balance board like fixed my posture in like a day. I found myself like standing up straighter. I found myself uh, being a, a little more just just like conscious of it, and, and like it felt like it really helped. And uh, and Trent said, if I can speak for him, it's helped him with his like lower back. He's got some lower back stuff, so it's like helping that. And so I, I'm just like. For me, it was like I lo- I locked into a good setup that I like, but but I think the um, the biggest thing is just shaking it up and doing something different, like trying to get out of of the hunched over for eight nine hours a day. Um, and then the I've also fluid gone- stance is that the thing? Yeah, fluid stance. Okay, cool. It's like a hundred bucks. You gonna get one? I might. Does it work on carpet? Because I have carpet in here. Yeah, it works on carpet. It's probably le- you can get like a little mat if you want it to like because oh they're not a like hundred bucks. Oh my god, I they're a little more cheaper. expensive, Chris. <laughs> but but you can get you can get like uh uh you can get like a different one. But but like there's like surfer ones, you know that are yeah. I mean they're really it's a work of art, so I get it. Um, it's nice. It's not, it's a nice piece of okay. little furniture. I just it was dumb. I spent money on it. It's yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Audible. Audible for yeah. <laughs> all your podcasting. Not a sponsor. Uh, 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 they should be though. I'm a fan. And Audible, should. if you're listening, please, we could we could use the help around here. We could use more balance sports. Um, <laughs> and so I recently also switched over back to my my sculpt ergonomic keyboard, which we talk about a lot. Um, I use it. I don't know what. I don't know what happened. I just I, I was using like a flat keyboard and it was going really well, but then my hands just started 
like just whining, you know, like after every day, it was just like, my hands hurt. So the I most switched back and piece of computer it's weird, but it's good. I, it, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not hurting at the end of the day and that's nice. So I couldn't, I couldn't switch for love or money. Somebody was just switching. Somebody was showing me some pictures, of some cool customizable keyboards. And I'm always like, Oh, that's so cool. Your desk probably looks great. I don't like the look of my, of my sculpt at all. I don't even have the sculpt any, I, I have one of those, a backup, but I went to the old school model, the big honking, I don't oh, know really? like the, uh, the four thousand or whatever it is. The yeah, with the, like four thousand heavy keys, like the chuck 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 chuck. Well, they're not that heavy. It's just the thing is oh. bulky. The thing looks. It's probably the size of the thing you're standing on right now. It's enormous. <laughs> I see. I'm on the website now. Wow. Yeah, it's a big wow. guy. But you know what? Every time I every time I switch away from it, I'm like, I'm going back. That thing was so comfortable. Anyway, James, good luck with your stuff. I I would add to the to the James question that. Um, I think what you do outside of your desk time has a big point as well. So it's like people are trying to solve the problem at work, and that's fine because that's probably you know it's it's solvable there. But I can say in the last few years, it's, you know, if you've ever met me in real life or seen a picture of me or whatever, you know, it's it seems a little weird to have like Chris Chris and Dave Health Hour because obviously we're not you know we're not like two ripped guys. You know, I've, I've been called an Adonis before. <laughs> so, so, but I should say for the last like two, three years, I've been seeing a personal trainer almost every day. I've done a lot of health stuff and I'm getting better and I yo-yos around, but I'm, I'm as healthy as I have been in a long time. And I think that I don't worry so much about my posture and how I feel at work and stuff because I do like I'm six months into CrossFit at this point and I'm like feeling good about that. And I just don't, I don't, you know, maybe my work has a little bit to do with that, but I feel like I exercise enough that that like mm-hmm. kind of takes care of most, most of my health concerns that are related to, to computering. Yeah. You know, I, I was talking about getting the standing desk and my friend Jan was like, you should just walk your dog twice a day. Like, that, like that's, <laughs> I think Jan that's might have a point. free yeah. and better. And I was just like, listen, Jan. <laughs> I want to solve this with you, money. <laughs> yeah, no, I would like to throw money at this problem, not <laughs> not know. just pay attention to my dog. Uh, Goodness gracious, that would be terrible. Um, so I, I think there's, yeah, like I, I have been going on walks with my dog in the morning and afternoon or night kind of in Texas. But um, yeah, so stuff like that it that makes a huge difference you know and i i don't know i'm i've been thinking so much about like maybe i need to like like add in a fake commute to my to my work because i'm like 10 steps from my house but like what if i walked around the block or got coffee at some you know grocery store or something or nearby you know like then go to work and that would add like a mile of walking Coffee is work, a good so. thing to keep in your mind too. You know, like if you walk there and then get like a you know super healthy granola cranberry chocolate chip bar, it's not you know you've negated it's, the yeah uh, carbon offset there. Um, carb offset. Uh, Ryan, <sighs> Ryan Mallet writes, and this is a very specific nerdy one. Uh, and it was about, I think it was about CSS tricks, which at the, at the moment I'm having some minor, minor speed concerns on. So if you're listening to this live, which nobody is, cause we're not recording it live. Um, don't go right now, but I'm sure it will be solved soon. But recently I switched to PHP seven and HTTP two, you know, just getting ahead of the curve, getting, awesome. getting it speeded up. Wow. Media temple helped with that. Uh, and, and, and usually all goes well. I don't, I think I might've screwed up some kind of caching thing at the NGINX level or something. It's been fast as heck. It's been faster than it has in years and years. And it's been so awesome. PHP seven screams. HTTP two is sweet. Although I should say that this might be a good excuse for us to talk about HTTP two a little bit because you know what I did to prepare for it nothing hmm. and I think that's okay. not that's not the best possible way to to handle HTTP2 anyway Ryan is wondering I've been doing I I wanted to upgrade and did upgrade to these things with my WordPress sites and I've been getting what he calls the dreaded error speedy protocol error on secondary page, uh, pages until I refresh my permalinks uh, yay fixed right. However, I soon found I was unable to consistently make post requests to the server without receiving the error, the spitty error. Uh, so blah, blah, blah. He tries to fix it, tries Googling solutions, can't find anything, flushes Chrome cache, can't find anything, um, something wrong with speedy sockets. And he's got a bunch of data in here, but he's basically saying, I gave up. I had to switch back to HTTP 1.1. 
because I just couldn't get HTTP going with my WordPress site. So Dave and I, not experts in this. Although I should, what, what stood out to me is that you're getting all these speedy problems. Speedy was like a polyfill for HTTP2 in a sense, wasn't it? Or like a, like a network level add-on to like fake it kind of? Yeah, it was almost like a competing protocol um, that that morphed into the HTTP2 protocol. My so. suspicion here is that you turned on real HTTP2 and have all that stuff installed. Mm. You know what I mean? Because I think... Yeah. yeah. Well, I wonder... So, error speedy protocol, that sounds like a, a, a browser error, right? Like, on the browser level. Yeah, yeah. And the, like, there's something wrong with headers or something. I just, yeah. I just suspect that's the case. I would get rid of Speedy. That's like old and gone. I would just like anything that has to do with that. I would attempt to remove from my servers. And then, if you're interested in HTTP two, try to do it like enable it at the Apache level or wherever the heck you turn it on. I'm not even sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wish I was more um, like up to date so I could help this, but I really don't. Um, I don't know. I, I'm, uh, just not here. I, I, you know, whenever somebody's like, just do it and it's fast. And I'm like my, all of my skin is just like, it's not going to be easy. It's going to fall apart. Everyone says it, you know, and when people kind of pitch something, it's like so easy. You just like turn on HTTP two and then you configure your server to push and then your website's super fast. Duh. Uh, I'm like, Oh God, that's going to, something's going to break. So that I'm, so I'm unfortunately not there. Um, You're probably better to wait because what, what there needs to be more blog posts on, please people point me to these or write them and then post me to them. Okay, so I've turned on HTTP2, now what? I'm aware that there's things like, well, open connections allow us to, for example, not use icon systems anymore because it's just as good to use like image source equals icon.svg because like there's no penalty in loading multiple assets from like the same domain or whatever because it's just an open connection and it's fine. Is that, okay, I get it. I conceptually, I get it. I can't wait for that day. It's going to be sweet. Can I do it now? I think the answer is like, well, if, if 100% of your audience was using stable Chrome on desktop only or something, sure, you can do that. But, or you know, maybe the mobile one supports it. I don't know. You, you got to tell me in this blog post. And then, but what I want to know at the same time is what are the repercussions for the older browsers that don't support HTTP2? Like, is it worth keeping the icon system around for how long? Like, what happens to, isn't it browsers themselves that need to cooperate with your server doing HTTP2? You know, like, do I need two versions of my code base? Like, how do I take advantage of HTTP2 without penalizing older browsers? Is that just not going to happen for a while? I just don't know I, the I think, answers to those questions. I think it doesn't. I think you have to penalize. I like to to get the gains of of HTTP2. You have to kind of, you know, you'll chunk up your JavaScript or or not, you know, concat. Yeah, and not, you know, there's some benefits, but yeah, you're doing, um, I was shocked to learn uh, every browser except IE11, which is not, you know, really current, um, Safari, mobile, uh, the regular Safari, but I think mobile Safari does have it, uh, and Opera Mini, of course, our our beloved laggard Opera Mini. Um, Yeah, so... Uh, Safari only has partial support, I think, and so does i11. But everyone else has has HTTP two support. Let's just um, say next next Fourth of July, we'll uh, we'll we'll probably all be there, and it'll be so fun, and we'll laugh about how we used to make sprite sheets. <laughs> oh, I can't wait! Just good riddance. I don't. I cannot wait to stop concatenating all my crap and do all that stuff. If you're into vanilla web stuff, which I know you are, Dave, more and more, right? Forget preprocessors. What you know, like not. I know you're not. You're more. You know, you're less dogmatic than that. But you've been into vanilla web stuff lately. A lot of the vanilla web people are like, screw build processes too. These things are getting too complicated. I think they're going to love HTTP two and that. A lot of times, people reach for build tools at all for. Uh, for things like minification, well, minification isn't that important when uh, gzip does like twenty times more than it does, and you don't have to concatenate things anymore because HTTP doesn't care. It's like the, a lot of the you know, and if you're like ah, screw preprocessors, there's three major reasons to use a build step that are all gone now. 
I think mm-hmm. they'll be. Uh, no, I mean, there's there's a lot, you know. I think things that kind of disappear, and I and I'm kind of looking forward to that. Um, I, I there's been a big talk or, or like big kind of subcurrent of talks I get into um, at conferences, um, and and it's all like the web is getting so hard to make a website. You know, I think it, it came up in the web design day. You know, like what would you tell a newcomer to do, um, or is it too overwhelming? And and I think that's I'm like a big fan of, of this idea that you, there's one thing we can do to eliminate 80% of our headaches, you know? And so we just got to figure out what that is, you know? Um, and, and, you know, I, I think we're pretty close. I, there are, you know, features of SAS like nesting and all that, but, but man, it, like if you're writing good SAS, you don't do a lot of nesting, right? Like you shouldn't, you're, like you should avoid it. Um, so that you kind of can solve your own problems if you like back away from a technology. But I, I, again, I don't have great answers here. I love the nesting. I love the partials of SAS, but I, I kind of hate the build step. I hate that everything requires some sort of, you know, giant, you know, framework, you know, to, to build it. So we'll see how this all plays out. We have one that we were talking about before the show. I'm like, did we do this one or not? At least we talked about it. This might be a repeat, but we'll just be, we'll just do it real quick. Uh Matia Moronic writes in, um I'm doing my best to use the latest front end tech, React, Redux, all that stuff. I'm coding a lot. Yet, I find myself achieving much less than I did years ago in Rails. Modern tools provide much more power over the application state, file size, and whatnot, but it's taking me insanely long to build the simplest things because I want to just do it right. Uh, is front-end development currently in a bad state, or am I projecting? Gosh, I kind of set this up, didn't I? Well, <laughs> yeah, you kind of did. I mean, in, in, in Matias, like, main problem is um is the slowness that it's taking i guess him or her i can't tell uh to build to build things at all so is that slowness inherent to the tooling and a problem or is it slow because you're new to it or is there more files to touch is there some like really standard reasons for it i I guess that's the question and then it, it sounds like you're like well this seems like the right way to do it so Whatever is it the problem? Is it can we extrapolate this one experience into the entire state of front end is in dire states, <laughs> straits? St- I don't know. I, uh, I yeah, it's tough to like abstract everything. I sympathize because uh, I feel a little slower lately. Like when I can just jQuery slop a little feature together, I feel very fast and efficient at it, and then look back and be like, well, that's a mess. Nobody knows what I did. None of the rest of the application knows about this. I don't know how to sync it across multiple um, like screens and stuff if I if I had to. I'm not like, you know, it's just the, the things that I do. So um, instead I'm slow. Instead I'm like, well, is this really part of the application state? Should I write it in such a way that other people can subscribe to these events happening in case they want to, you know, add their own events related to this event? Should I write a test for it to make sure and stuff? I think part of that slowness isn't the, the front end being in a bad state. It's the front end being in a good state. It's, it's like all these best practices being encouraged to, to write things in a more like prescribed and long-lasting way. That's just the feeling that I get. And it's um, both of us are having micro experiences in a very o- a large ocean of front-end stuff. So I, you know, the temptation to, be, to, to, to take our micro experiences and decide that the entire industry is in a good state or bad state, eh, it's a, it might be a little much. Yeah, that, it's tough, but I, I do empathize. I I have a React app I've been working on, and it's so great. And then, uh, you know, it's like, hey, can we move this thing over here? And it was like, yeah, that's gonna that'll take me like a, a two days because I have to like write an if statement in React, and it's just gonna take a while, <laughs> you know. And and I think if you you use React day in day out, you're like, what are you talking about? You're a dummy. But it's like if you're just like if you have to like break that out and now you have to like kind of write a new component and stuff like you just start building this tree of, of like components and complexity and, and it just starts just billowing in, in difficulty. And so I, I was just, you know, it, it is kind of like getting harder to do things. Um, and some of these, you know, new frameworks are kind of just, just add a lot. I watched a talk on, 
on Turbo Links 5 for Rails 5 uh, recently. Oh, and, are those and new? It, isn't there some cool new WebSockets thing in Rails 5 or whatever? Is yeah, that, a- Action Cable yeah, in action Rails cable. 5 and, um, and Turbo Links 5. And, and the Turbo Links is just basically it fetches a page rendered server side on you know, in HTML and then injects it into the body. That's what, that's what, uh, that's what turbo links does. It's PJAX. If you've looked at PJAX from GitHub and stuff, uh, it, so I don't know. I just was like, I kind of like that. I, I you know, you take away a bunch of, a, a bunch of headaches. If you're just like trying to do all the rendering server side, you know, so I don't know. I'm like, I, I think there's kind of, room i guess for different ways to do things they're the react way where it's all client side and building and and or angular which is kind of like a mix of templates and client side and uh and then you know then there's like rails and turbo links which like turbo links is not cool in the javascript world but i think it actually but it like actually solves problem yeah right and like probably instead of like thousands of production sites use it even though nobody talks about it maybe they do outside of our circles but well, and, and like if if you called instead of calling it Turbo Links, you called it Server DOM. I bet it would be so cool, and people would be like, "Oh, dude, I'm do- rendering on Server DOM instead of VDOM." Or oh, your so, Server <laughs> DOM is a great word. You can have that one. I'm gonna write a book on Server DOM. Catel, uh, if you're listening, Server DOM. Uh, so yeah, Server DOM is the new latest technology that's sweeping the world. So. Um, yeah, I'm anyway, I'm kind of super interested in in um just the different ways to do things, but I you know, I I'm building a React app, I work on a Rails app. I I I will agree with Matia. I'm I open the Rails app and I'm like, "Cool, I know what to do. I'm cooking." And that's probably cuz I know what I'm doing there. Um while in the React world, it's kind of like, okay, how does React want Only because it's new for you. I think it has some similarities, um, particularly when you add Redux in there. Everybody, I think Rail, Re, uh, um, React had that, like, you can just use it anywhere. It's not a framework. It's just a view layer. It doesn't make any assumptions about your technology. Uh, and then and then you're like, yeah, but like the way that it's like mostly used, or I don't know, I shouldn't say mostly, because I'm not absolutely not an expert in this, but like as soon as you add Redux, then all that prescriptive stuff comes right back at you. It's like, no, this is how you do stuff. And that's what people wanted and like, I think, about about um, the React Redux world, is that like this, it's there's a prescribed set of ways of doing things, and people like to be told what to do, just like they like to be told, like if you do Railsy stuff in Rails, it just tends to work. That's that's how you should do things, and things are happier that way, uh, and they are just like they yeah. are in the React world. So it's just like you just don't know it as well. But I think super experts at it are flying around in there. Yeah, well, and, and you know, I, I, it's easy to be like, oh, all this newfangled stuff is difficult, too difficult. And and I mean, I remember it took me like a good solid two years to like grasp what MVC was doing, and, and like how Rails's opinion of it is is kind of very thought out and very stable um, kind of way to do it. So, I, that, you know, that's that's something to think about, too, is like maybe it's just new and it's not difficult. It's just new. Um, or I guess it is difficult, but it, I don't know. I don't know. But I agree. I, I, I'm totally sympathizing here because it is I, – I do think every website's taking like 20x longer to build than it used to. But I think that's also just the state of the union. I, I think there's more money involved in products and A-B tests and blah, blah, blah. And it's just, you know – there's there's more at stake and and so I think things are taking are slowing down and it's not the cowboy days of just just build this thing and put it up on an unprotected database and woo looks great. This episode of Shop Talk brought to you in part by Braintree Payments. The URL is braintreepayments.com slash shop talk simple secure payments that you can integrate quickly except nearly any type of payment so it's not just credit cards but it's paypal as well and it's apple pay and it's bitcoin 
all that type of stuff. Some new hot payment thing comes along, you're covered because Braintree's going to support it and it's just that one API, so you're kind of good to go. And then like, what kind of apps can you write if you're planning on using Braintree? Or like, what languages are supported? Well, you can write Android apps, iOS apps, JavaScript clients. There's an SDK in so many languages. .NET, Node.js, Java, Perl, PHP, Python, Ruby, all elegant code with clear documentation. It's super nice. Braintreepayments.com slash shop talk. Uh, we got one about, about organizing components here from Alexander B., who's fully on board with Smacks. Uh, from way of thinking and, and using SAS uh, as a part of that. In particular, making generous use of module files uh, at his work. They call them components. I recently came upon a mention of using sub-module files. So uh, the use case here is maybe you have, uh, I don't know, style.scss, right? And it's kind of a table of content style. I think that's gotten pretty popular. I certainly like it, where there's no like CSS in it. It's just like a master file of includes that loads lots of different modules and smashes them all together. Uh, mm-hmm. for, and one of those files might be table. .scss, right? And it, it just it's one file and its whole job in the world is to have all your table styles in it. Uh, but Alexander is seeing then not like let's say you want like um what do they call that zebra striped tables? Mm-hmm. Uh, I would in my world usually I would just put that stuff in table.scss. It's 100% related to tables, but he's seeing people break that out into yet another file and make like table-striped dot scss. Mm. I've seen this before, but I haven't done it much in part because I can't tell when I should break a submodule out. In your work and opinion, is a submodule file something that you'd create once the module file got too big, or as soon as there's another mar- variation of the module or another way? Oh, that's mm. a that's a good question. I mean, I immediately saw it and was like, "Whoa, that's a bit much, cowboy." But I'm, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you're talking like. You save ten bytes by breaking it out. Um, uh, that's it's tough. I for me, where the the biggest problem on this is where it becomes an organizational issue because now when you hire a new developer or something like that, you've got to teach them that all these files exist and they have to go through and read every single file and figure out what every file does so they can include it all in their table of contents uh, just correctly. Um, so so. Uh, I I don't like that. I, to me, I'm I'm just like, oh, you want the tables? It's in the tables, and then you know, if you're curious about tables, open open up tables. It's kind of like how many different. Uh, I don't know. You're already breaking it into chunks, though. So, like, yeah, to I me, it just so. doesn't. It just doesn't matter. It's kind of like if that if that is it too big, maybe, but probably not. You know. But I mean, I guess the whole reason I make a table of contents file is because I I don't like two thousand line files. They're just they're not as mm-hmm. comfortable for me, and my mind immediately goes to the like. Oh, I'm I'm working with a table style. Let me just like command P or whatever for table.scss and I know right where that style is. But that's just that's just muscle habit. I could, I'm sure I could get used to some other muscle habit. You know, can you make symbols or whatever in CSS files? Maybe I could use jump to symbol in one file without using any subfiles at all. Or maybe it's just the convenience of whoever was working and they're like, no, I like I like breaking one level deeper still. I make it and then I make variations of the component individual files and that's just how I like to work. I wouldn't take that away from anybody. I mean, I can say it feels a little <laughs> micro-filed out, but I don't know. It's... It's just taking the the abstraction of componentry one level deeper. So, whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yeah. I guess it's like whatever you and your team are comfortable with. Like, are you? Do you want to split it out, or do you want to keep it there? I bet. Well, the classic yeah. thing is my level of abstraction is better than your level of abstraction. You know. Like, well, I do declare I've I've been abstracting in the best possible way. So. Your your abstraction is abysmal. I don't understand it. Therefore, it is wrong. It is it is not what I do. Therefore, it is wrong. Um, yeah, I I think I don't know. I I I like I like breaking out into partials. I think you what can you do for partials is, in vanilla. Do you just not do it at all? You only do you, or do you only go vanilla on sites that just don't need that kind of intensity of? 
Uh, I mean, you you just your file is organized like the table of contents, you know. So you have like you just add big old comment blocks to be like, this right. is a new thing. So that's what I do. Um, like this is the whatever card module. This is the. Is there a way to do it? Have you ever done that in like Atom or Sublime? You know, there's like jump to symbol, which I never use, but everybody, every time I read an article about Sublime, they're like, it's the greatest feature that's ever existed in the history of editors. And I was like, I use Control go to R. Is it R? I thought it was like yeah. T or go to anything, go to anything. I'm like, what is okay. anything that's, uh, that's not a file? They're like, well, there's symbols. I'm like, what's a symbol? <laughs> I just don't know. I'm sure there's people <laughs> out there that are, that are going crazy. Do you write like at symbol in the file or are, is it function names or what? Like, I don't, I've never jumped like down a file from that c- command. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I have. I, but that's usually when I have like a really ugly CSS file, like on, on day trip, the thing. So on day trip, we've been building out, I've been like doing some optimization work, mostly on the database end, but I, I was kind of getting into some SAS stuff, new features. We have like tips and logs and they're kind of very similar, but they, they were enough to break out into two things. And I started or, reorganizing all the CSS. Uh, but I have this thing called list dot css which is terrible it was originally just like a ulol but then like you know four or five different versions of lists come in and they're like you know 50 hundred lines each and now it's just a big gnarly file and so i had to kind of break that out and and break that up into smarter more maintainable modules but one thing i'm not happy with my my breaking out approach is my our CSS on day trip is, is like 55 K or something ridiculous for, for a site that doesn't warrant that at all. Uh, so I'm kind of like, kind of like angry at at partials. I'm like, I need to like, that's, that's way too much CSS. So I need to figure out how to break that down and, and kind of crunch that into something more reasonable for the site. So that I I don't know how that relates to anything, but it's just to say like, I've I've done something bad and there's some low hanging fruit that I can optimize and and I just need to figure out how to do it. Although it's harder to optimize if you're in a bunch of different files, right? Cuz cuz if you break thing in one thing in one file, you know, it could affect 10 files if if something's if you're just doing like small little nudges to components in other files. So um yeah, hopefully that was clear. I don't feel it's hard to explain things like well, modules. in the grand tradition of Shop Talk Show, we just don't answer any question. There's there's yeah. consideration. Um, um, it, here's another uh, one that uh, we're not we're not we're not answers of. Nick Simpson writes on. He works for a nonprofit, and they uh, they must sell something or take credit cards in some way. Uh, and he and he and he works with somebody who wrote to him saying that uh, apparently people are like buying lists of credit card numbers and running them through their website to see if they find any valid numbers. Um, then it blows up our email with all these notifications from Authorize.net. So they probably are set up to be like, when somebody buys a T-shirt, you know, and when we get a charge from Authorize.net, email, you know, Bob at company.com or whatever, and get the thing. And then once in a while they'll come into like ten thousand. <laughs> charge requests, you know, in their email because they're like, "Whoa, what happened there?" And it was some, you know, some bad guy found found a way mm-hmm. to to validate the thing. And he's he's saying, I, you know, I ha- I've never experienced this before. I just want some advice on what to do. They're using Authorize.net and and uh, and Weebly, and it looks like mm. the uh, um, they support you know Stripe and HTTPS. Does is it do? You, Get anything by switching to Stripe here, or, and I, I, don't, I don't think you do. I think you're going to face the same kind of problem. You know, it's just somebody's using your web form to to test stuff. So it's kind of on you. It's like this is part of the job. Unfortunately, payments is kind of a hard thing. I have a little advice to offer, and one of them is that I think that the way this works is that. They are testing your cards to see if there are any valid numbers, and then unfortunately, then there's like a fraudulent charge on that card. So that that card is both it's like hot, you know, like it's 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 very valuable to that criminal for the next like 24 hours, you know, because you know fraud detection kicks in. It might even kick in immediately. Maybe it doesn't though. Maybe it's gonna maybe the charge looked okay, and it's gonna take the person noticing it on their bill to 
But it's much better than a card number that just doesn't work at all. You know, like this is a hot number. That, those are the ones that they sell sometimes. I think, I think, you know, if you're on the black market for these kind of things and what little I've read, you know, to buying a list of a hundred hot cards like that, that, you know, that work are, it's worth good money, you know? So like that, the turnaround for that stuff is pretty fast and they're using your site to figure that out. And it's probably because the price point for what you're selling is like in that tier. And we've ran a little bit about this on, on CodePen Radio, but they don't want to try out your card with a $5,000 purchase. They, they're just trying to figure out if the card works at all or not. So that's, that's part of the problem. And then another one is like, you know, I, I know on Stripe that like they don't require all that much information. Like you don't even need a zip code or address or anything if you don't want to, but you can require them if you want to as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I might consider that. You might be like, well, we're just going to start asking for more information with these because it might turn away some people. Or you might try honeypots or captchas or all the normal kind of form blocking stuff. Because it's all, if you're getting like tens or hundreds of thousands of attempts on your site – your form is probably too easy to hit. It probably can be hit programmatically, you know, hit from mm-hmm. a from a script, which you don't want. You want some kind of, you know, that and that's one of the advantages to using something like Rails with their like fancy auth token thingies that get generated by the browser and stuff. I don't know. I would hit Weebly customer support right away because they're probably the ones that are offering the payment features at all. And then you just plug in your authorized.net information or whatever. So you'd be like Dude, don't you have some kind of system for this? I mean, they're mm-hmm. they're a big fancy website builder thing. They probably have tens of thousands of customers. They should probably help you with this. Uh, and yeah, I, yeah. Oh, the the more information you ask for is is Good. that that's harder to crack. I mean, that's just like password entropy or or two factor authentication. You know, yeah. Um, the the chances that somebody stole my credit card from Home Depot is like a hundred percent, but like that they got my email uh, or my uh, you know zip code or my uh, whatever my my uh, three digit code on the back three four digit code that's you know there's there's like less of a chance they got all that information is sort of what what I was gonna say. Also, minor point here that's very I think is extremely important. You need to refund those charges. Don't just be like, "Well, we got some money out of it or whatever," because you're not going to get that money anyway. That money's mm-hmm. you're going to get a chargeback on it, and a chargeback is bad for. I know it is bad on Stripe. Like you, you have some like trust kind of secret trust score kind of thing with Stripe, and like if you go below that because you're getting too many chargebacks, you just are shut down. So like mm-hmm. you don't want that to happen to you, and you don't get any negatives at all if you just refund them. So don't wait for them for the chargeback to happen. Refund it right now. Uh, that's the mm-hmm. best way to go. And then not only do you like not get a fee or whatever, like you don't you don't have to pay the 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 the, the fee for the thing. You know, the like if it's a ten dollar thing, you pay sixty cents or whatever. You're not on the line for that either. It's just a zero sum game. You just have refunded their money. Done. Or maybe you pay the that, but not the chargeback or something. There's some kind of like way you are saving money here too, as well as your trust. So uh, I know it's a pain in the butt, but good luck, Nick. Yeah, yeah, and you're being scripted again. So I'm sure if you like change something, you could, you know, like a button name or right. something. You know, like I think you could maybe hack around it. Um, you know, all the the hackers will probably like quit doing it if they keep getting like like error codes in their thing because their job is becoming less efficient. So, um, so yeah, good luck. Uh, botnets are bad. Uh, all right, Jake Riker writes in. I just listened to Rapid Fire forty eight, and near the end, you and Dave were talking about sitemaps. I work for Vengage dot com, V E N N G A G E dot com, and a few weeks ago, I wrote about a uh, a nodes sitemap generator for our thousands of community infographics. So they do uh, community infographics and wrote a a script for it. Um, mm. Just letting you guys know uh, that 50,000 links is the limit per sitemap. However, there's a thing called sitemap index file, which uh, holds links to individual sitemaps, but which have a limit of 50,000 links. So your your sitemap XML sounds like it can only have 50,000 links. Google and other search engines use these index files to find the individual sitemaps, then parse them. 
Also, Google Webmaster Tools shows us uh, that it has successfully parsed through our 25,000 plus URLs. Uh, and then he included a link to their uh, the sitemap XML. Um, so yeah, that's kind of helpful. I get we probably flipped over like I think the question was like, are sitemaps still a thing? Um, <laughs> and yes, but well, and know, then there's like what you know, like CodePen has. Well, coming out eight million pens. We can't put eight million URLs into a sitemap so Google can find them. That's too many. It's not. It just won't work. But you could break them out into individual sitemaps and then link the sitemap map. It's just good information to have. You know, like we probably won't because I'm not just. I'm not sure I care that much or like, you know, like I. Not, it's not the caring. It's just I'm not sure that we have the right kind of site for it. You know, if you had some kind of if you were Wikipedia or something, it might be a good idea. You know, you had like content that is like clearly like good vetted content and there's just a ton of it and it just needs to you want to make sure that whatever's crawling your site really can get at every nook and cranny and knows about all those pages even though they're interlinked and whatever i just you know neither of us are experts on the seo thing but sitemap seemed to be something that google still asks for as part of google webmaster tools and if you have a site that seems appropriate for it thanks to jake for Telling us about a way to get more than fifty thousand into sitemap. Files. There's also a uh, there's also like a, a a thing like a hack, I guess, or, or like a bonus hack, I guess, for Google Webmaster Tools and in setting all this up is it'll let you know if like it can't find files, like if you messed something up or broke some URLs, like it lets you know that you did that. So I I I don't do Google Webmaster Tools enough, but uh, it's pretty all right. Yeah, I should do it more too. It seems like there's some like it's kind of like low hanging fruit web tools. It seems like there's stuff mm-hmm. that it warns you about in there that you probably should address because it probably won't be that hard to address. Yeah, maybe it'll grow right. up one day. Maybe it'll like start integrating their you know performance testing and stuff. That's what Google should really do. I mean, I know that might hurt some of our friends like web app businesses that are. Are doing similar kind of things, but see, Google seems well poised to give you like a real good dashboard look of your website's, you know, performance and SEO. And wouldn't it be? In, yeah, I would. I would be interested in a a web perf apocalypse where <laughs> where it just like comes down to like JavaScript frameworks are bad. Like like they are bad for performance, and like everyone just scrambles just. Just pandemonium in the streets. <laughs> ah, oh, and Rails gets so way popular tech- again, and like oh, yeah. Django just skyrockets. And- oh yeah, Rails Rails positioned for a comeback with server DOM technology. Well, this is related to our final question, which we can touch on quick. Scott Branch writes in: I recently started using Mustache JS, and I love it. I was going to implement it into a new project. However, it's it's an absolute necessity that these pages are crawled by Google for SEO, and I don't think there are any SEO benefits to using Mustache, which Mustache is just whatever. It's just a t- JavaScript templating, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, do you know if there are any web bots for crawling, indexing on the fly, or is there no an- is there no answer for Mustache SEO yet? Mustache just being like a, a synonym here for anything. Client rendered whatsoever. <laughs> Client side templating language. I don't know that I'd worry about it. It's because it, it just it seems like first of all people are saying like as far as I'm hearing that you know Google runs JavaScript. Don't worry about it, kind of thing. I think if you have URLs that like spit out the data somehow, I think you'd probably be okay. I don't think just because it's templated in Mustache that it's absolutely 100% impossible for Google to read. I don't think that's the case anymore. There is far too much of that on the web for Google to ignore it, and I'm sure they're not. No, I, I think, yeah, the the crawler uses JavaScript. Like, it, it does understand it. I mean, can it, like, execute, like, you know, gigs of React code? I don't know. Um, that's a Google question. So, but but like, I think like for like basic JavaScript, which I, yeah, I you sent a little JSON down the wire and you templated it up, and even if it was just a blog post, I wonder like is a is a client side rendered blog post the same exact content on one side and then just like a server side rendered HTML template on the other? Does Google care? Will it rate this the client side rendered version of that blog post less highly? And the server one, 
or or is it like does it does it just because it's client rendered does it get negative points? Like, what if it's faster? What if it's literally a faster website? Uh, you know, the server's configured better, the data comes down faster. There's more asynchronous loading stuff going on. I wonder if it might even win. It might even get more points than the other one. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Does Google give you points for progressive enhancement? Just don't know the answer to that. I don't know. I'm looking, uh, trying to, let's see. I'm going to go to DaveRupert.com. I'm running tests to see what Google sees about my site. It gets all the stuff. I don't think it did a really great job. Anyway, all right. Uh, I'm just, I don't know. Who knows what Google tells us? Google, it's such a curious art. Um it's a black box. We put all of our hopes and businesses in. You know what we should do next week? Let's do, we should go through your, because I just went to DaveRupert.com. We should do your uh, Dave Goes to Build and your kind of, kind of the Oh, yeah. The wrap I'd up. love to talk about that. You know? All right, next show, talking about Microsoft. <laughs> That's a good teaser. We never do those. Teaser? Well, <laughs> That's good. That's good. All right, well, Chris, I think uh, it's time to bid adieu thank everybody for listening to this in your podcast of choice be sure to star heart favorite it up tweet about it that's how people find out about the show we uh, uh really appreciate that uh thank you very much to everyone who tweets about the show uh who uh, also if you hate your job head over to shoptalkshow.com slash jobs i want to tell you about a job a front-end developer position over at lighthouse london uh we are lighthouse.com they're looking for a front-end developer uh in if you are a uk resident and lots of you are uh you can uh move on down to london town it sounds like a really great job uh they do you you'd be working on style guides written in sas uh, you'd be contributing to like building out boilerplates for client projects. It sounds like you also working with WordPress. If you know how to do that, PHP MVC frameworks. If you know how to do that, some JavaScript libraries. If you know how to do that, this might be a really great uh, place for you. They also organize internal hack days, so you can build out your own ideas and products. Uh, not every job gives you that. Uh, rapidly producing prototypes, putting things together in a jiffy. You might like this job if you are a listener of Shop Talk. So head over to wearelighthouse.com or click the link in the show notes and uh, you can get a uh, start applying and, and check out Lighthouse. So if you hate your t-shirt, head over to shoptalkshow.com and click uh, the store link and it'll take you to CSS Tricks. Get a brand new shirt uh, with a nice fresh orange Shop Talk logo on Good. I wore one yesterday. Uh, and yeah, and then... Is there uh, anything else uh, we'd like to say, uh, Chris? <laughs> I don't think so. Shopdogshow.com. <laughs>